Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the first episode of our conservation season. I interviewed my guest this week a few months ago, hoping to have her on the previous season, but I really, really had such a wonderful, impactful conversation with my guest that I knew that it needed to kind of be the centerpiece of the conservation season. So let's just get to it. You have to meet her. She is such a wonderful, interesting person, and I want you to hear all about the work that she does on a day-to-day basis. My guest this week is Tony Westland. So my name is Tony Westland. I'm the Supervisory Refuge Ranger here at the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge on Sanibel. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Let me repeat the name of that refuge that she just said, because it is very unique. I want to tell you about it before we get into it. It's called the J.N. Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. It is named for a man named J. Norwood Darling, but everyone just called him Ding, a shortening of his surname if you remove the arl in the middle. (laughs) Ding was born in Michigan and worked as an editorial cartoonist for a large portion of his career, working in various papers around the country. During that time, Ding became a devout believer in conservation and started advocating for it throughout the 1930s. We'll come back to that in a moment, but today, Ding's name sits on a massive, gorgeous wildlife refuge on the northern edge of Sanibel Island. I returned to Sanibel this past summer and had a wonderful vacation, including a very long bike ride through Ding one bright morning. It is one of the most special wild places I've gotten to visit in how it invites people into the refuge and has them get face to face with the animals and birds of this island. I was so enamored that I had to talk to an expert about the park. Our friend Emily Alfino from the Sanibel Historical Museum and Village suggested that if I wanted to talk about Ding Refuge, Tony Westland was the person to call. So that's exactly what I did. Tony is endlessly enthusiastic, knowledgeable, and fascinating. I could sit here and tell you a story around my conversation with Tony and tell you about Ding Darling, but you have to hear it from her. She is working every day in a wildlife refuge on Florida shores, educating people about animals and ecosystems and plant life. This is the kind of person you want defending your ecosystems every day. So... Let's get talking. Here is my conversation with Tony Westland. So how did you get into this field? What what brought you to this field? Oh, my goodness. It's kind of a funny story. So with the name Tony, um, you know, a lot of people, they hear Ranger Tony. They just assume I must be a man Um, because they're really when I started 23 years ago, you know, in the federal government, um, there wasn't that many females as rangers and so they just assumed Tony must be a man but I grew up in Wisconsin hunting and fishing Um, my dad had three daughters I was his last shot at a boy Um, my dad's all Italian so I had to get the name Tony Um, so I just happened to take on that role of the son of the family right and uh, to get outdoors with my dad and really from a young age I learned the importance of being outside and also, like I said, you know, using the resources um, wisely, but enjoying it. And, and so, 
you know, entering a field like this just was something I always wanted to do. And, and I remember my, my dad is, uh, you know, still alive today and, and we joke, but he would say, you know, you're going to work for three quarters of your life and you better enjoy what you're doing. And, and it doesn't matter the amount you get paid as if you get up every morning and you want to go to work, you're going to be a happier person. And, exactly right and so every day I get up as a ranger and love what I do I never really have the same day dealing with visitors and wildlife or helping save wildlife or you know teaching people or going to the schools I mean there's just always something new and different and so that's what I love about my job as part of the research of this story, this is going to sound, I feel like this is going to sound basic because I'd never heard of this person until I read a book that mentioned him. I, I've been reading Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold and have been, yes. oh my God, it is so good. Pardon me. It's yes. so, uh, do you have, I'm assuming you, because of the sound you made, you have some relationship with it. Can you talk about, about that, your relationship with that? Yeah. So I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, and it's a well-known natural resources university. But obviously, growing up in Wisconsin, it just was a good fit um, to go to Stevens Point. But Aldo Leopold, you know, being kind of that father of conservation and such, that um, the San County Almanac, I mean, I'm looking at it right now on my... Um, bookshelf but that was a staple that we had to read um, at school and I try to reread it every couple of years because it is if, if people haven't picked it up and I've been to the shack um, where Aldo Leopold spent his time you can go and and be in the shack and experience it and so it's just one of those staples for park rangers or any sort of conservationist so yeah that's a great read Interestingly, I actually started reading a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold on Sanibel back in July. I was so glad that Tony was excited to hear that I was reading it. I knew I had made a good choice. So let's talk about Ding itself. Tell me about the basics of Ding. Like, what is Ding? How big is it? Where is it? How big is it? What, what, what sort of ecosystems are present in it? Just give me the basic yeah. rundown of Ding. Yeah, so it's funny that you say ding, because I instantly, especially because we were talking about Aldo Leopold, ding the man is different from ding the refuge. Of course. Um, you know, but Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge actually was established 75 years ago. So we were the Sanibel National Wildlife Refuge established in 1945. But it was because of Ding Darling the Man that we're here today. But it was renamed the Ding Darling, the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge after his death. Um, he died in 62. It was renamed in 67. So the name Ding, people hear Ding and they think, oh, it must be a bird. Because we're known <laughs> for our birds. Over 250 different species throughout the year, a Ding must be a bird. But Ding is a man. And we can get into that more later. But... As for the refuge, we are on a barrier island, Sanibel Island, Florida, right off of Fort Myers. So you can fly easily into our international airport <laughs> or drive-in. But we are, again, a barrier island. Um, over 70% of the island is set aside for conservation. We are federal lands. We are your tax dollars at work. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So, you know... This land is your land. This land is my land. It truly is your land. It's people's land to come out and enjoy. People come for the beaches. We know three million people come across to this island, and about a million of them come to Ding Darling. 
And I joke that it's usually because they get sunburned and they need something else to do. <laughs> and then they stumble over here and they're like, wow, what is this place? Ding. And the parking is free right here. And our visitor center is free. We've got awesome volunteers that will help you plan your visit. And then you can drive through. We're incredibly accessible by bike, by car, by kayak, by foot. And so it's very minimal cost for you to come through and enjoy nature. And so it's mangroves. It's this crazy, swampy, beautiful environment that a lot of people might have never experienced. We get people from all over the world. A lot of Europeans come over and they kind of do the Disney, the Florida Keys, the Sanibel experience. They kind of do this loop around Florida. People in the summer that can handle the heat. We get families all over the Southeast. And then of course in the winter, that's when most people come. They come to see our snowbirds. Uh, we call them snowbirds, people with two feet. But our true <laughs> snowbirds, our population of birds explodes in the winter because this is truly a paradise for wildlife, for people, but for wildlife. And so um, and our big visitation is in the winter months, coming to enjoy the beaches, the warm weather, the wildlife. It's funny because you, you said immediately, there's Ding the Refuge and there's Ding the Man. Can you tell me about Ding the Man? I mean, I know he's, he's a character in and of himself. Can you tell me a little bit about his oh life? Oh, my gosh. I could talk about Ding for days. Um, he So his name is Jay Norwood Ding Darling. Norwood is his middle name. He was actually born in Norwood, Michigan. So a lot of people from the Midwest know of Ding Darling. He went to school in Beloit in Wisconsin, but he spent most of his life at the Des Moines Register. He was an editorial cartoonist. So, you know, he lived at a time, I love talking to kids about Ding, he lived at a time where there was no TV. And they're just like, what? No TV? Yeah, he drew a cartoon. It was on the front page of every newspaper. He was syndicated all over the country, over 150 different newspapers. But people knew Ding because they got their news from the newspaper. You opened your newspaper in the morning and right front and center was a cartoon. From Ding, And these were, again, an editorial cartoon about something that was happening in the environment. He loved to, to draw about politics, and he loved to draw about the environment. But he was quite the rebel. I mentioned Wisconsin. He got kicked out of college, um, Beloit College, for drawing an editorial cartoon um, of his chancellors in tutus. Um, he always, no matter if he loved you or hated you, I don't know if you wanted Ding drawing about you, because... He was great with a pen, and he could get his point across with no words or minimal words. And a lot of his cartoons you could put on the front page of our newspapers today. Deforestation, water quality, you know, mineral extraction, um, littering and plastics. I mean, all this kind of stuff that was he was just seeing the beginnings of. But the Dust Bowl is when he grew up, and he saw the depletion of resources that people were over hunting. Well, he was a big hunter. He knew we shouldn't take all the resources. So he was really good um, about getting his opinion and teaching people about things that were happening right now and what we should or should not be doing to help save the environment, to help each other. He had a house above Captiva and he was a snowbird too. And he would find time and quiet down here I'm not sure how he could deal with the mosquitoes. There, We were in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most mosquitoes caught in a net. 
three years in a row. <laughs> so the mosquitoes were bad back then, but he came and found peace down here in nature, drawing about the environment. So did Teddy Roosevelt. We have Roosevelt Channel right off of Captiva, where our president would come in a houseboat and spend time in this area. So early conservationists got it about, you know, taking from the resource to provide for yourself or your family, but not taking all of the resource. Ding drew the duck stamp, probably one of his best. His hands were in so many things. Sorry to interrupt Tony for a moment, but I want to briefly tell you about the duck stamp. The federal duck stamp is a stamp that was used to support the Migratory Bird Conservation Act. When that act was signed by Herbert Hoover back in the day, there was no obvious way to fund the protection of our birds, and the duck stamp was a method to ensure some money was going directly to the act. 98% of the proceeds, to be exact, went to supporting the Migratory Bird Conservation Act. The first duck stamp was designed by Ding Darling in 1934 at Franklin D. Roosevelt's behest. It's an iconic shot of two mallards landing. It's it's just a classic piece of art, and Ding was its creator. He was my boss, the head of the U.S. Biological Survey, which became the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He was in headquarters for 18 months, and he then passed this federal duck stamp, the Stamp Act, which now there was a federal duck stamp back in 1934. He drew the first one. The big thing is 98 cents on every dollar goes to buying land. He started this program. It was the first stamp. It's the most successful conservation stamp program. Now we have turkey stamps, trout stamps, um, different states have a duck stamp. But Ding Darling started this idea that the, you know, the hunters and the people that are taking from the resource should give back to saving the resource. And that's how we have 568 national wildlife refuges across the country, one within 50 miles of every major city. It's because the idea that conservationists, that hunters give back, but you can walk into our nature store today or a post office or all over or go online and buy a federal duck stamp because 98 cents on the dollar buys land. We can't spend it somewhere else. It buys land for conservation. It's just been this amazing thing that he, his legacy that has lived on so that we can enjoy these special places. Do you find that people are surprised when you talk about how, because I think, I mean, this is from my perspective as someone who is not working in conservation on a day-to-day basis, but do you, do you find that people are surprised when they learn how present conservation land or refuges or conservation funding is in their day-to-day lives? Like people are interacting with conservation in a sense every day. Are do you find people are surprised when they learn that? So I think since COVID, we all deep down inside have needed to get back into nature. Even if people didn't know it or not, people needed to get out. They walked, you know, we were all cooped up and I saw more people walking in our neighborhoods and spending time just sitting outside and, and our visitation and national wildlife refuges, I I believe parks, visitation went up um, in certain places where people could get out. You can social distance, be outside. If anything, if I've found some positives that have come from COVID, you've got to find a silver lining in life or you're going to be miserable, right? (laughs) And the silver lining is that people do need nature, that health implications, like, you know, we're healthier with nature, stress goes down, anxiety, blood pressure, you know, all these things 
stress levels, getting out, being mindful, this idea of mindfulness, that people, we have it in us, but I just don't think, people are finally realizing that they need conservation, they need nature, the clean air, the water, as we continue to, you know, have a lot of people on this planet, our actions lead to usually, you know, can be very detrimental to the thing that feeds us, which is a very healthy environment. I apologize if you maybe covered this in the first question about Ding, but can you talk about how it began, like how this land was originally set aside as conservation land, I think you said in 1945? How did that get started in, in Sanibel? Yeah, so Sanibel in itself, um, I love it. Ding Darling always took things into his own hands. He actually drew signs saying that it was a wildlife sanctuary. He, he drew the signs. He nailed them up on the trees. He didn't ask for permission. Um, he, he, again, it's the rebel in him um, to, to get it done. And so we actually have one of these original signs here with us right now, um, there's only one sign left of Ding Darlings that he actually posted around the island. So it was actually state land first, and then it became a national wildlife refuge. Our system was started by Teddy Roosevelt back in, you know, 1903. Um, and the first one was Vero Beach, Florida on the other coast. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. Teddy Roosevelt actually, I'm sorry to interrupt. What was that? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I love that refuge. I, I didn't know that that was the first one, and I stumbled upon it on accident first. because I I mean, I, I, I went to it because I was writing, when I first started the show, one of the first, like, history and environmental episodes I wrote was about the Indian River Citrus District, like, what makes it the Citrus yeah. District, and so I found, I went out to the Indian River Lagoon and wound up in that refuge by complete accident and and learned at that moment that it was the first refuge and was like what i didn't know that at all i didn't know that i didn't i could i couldn't have conceived that the first was in florida and i had just accidentally found it like it was so amazing i'm sorry to interrupt i just love that i i I think about that place all the time it's so wonderful over there continue it is a great place when you walk up the boardwalk. Oh, it's so cool it's with like all the walking names. walking back in time. We keep adding planks. We're adding national wildlife refuges, but I love that. Like, I get chills. That's amazing. That you're walking back in time, and you're seeing the establishment of all these beautiful lands across the country, all the way to lead to the overlook of Pelican Island. It, it is totally amazing. So it's something else. Yeah, so Teddy Roosevelt starts the system. He actually establishes three of our refuges here in 1908. Not Ding Darling, but we, we actually manage five refuges here, and they're out in the water. Uh, Rookery Island, this is the only one that you can come and set foot on, Ding Darling. But so, you know, Teddy Roosevelt starts all of this, but he, you know, Ding had his winter home here in Florida and on, captivity, on Captiva. So with the effort of island neighbors, um, you know, the Ding Darling Foundation has started, and concerned citizens you know, acquire, they get the federal government on board, and then it's finally administered by the Fish and Wildlife Service to become the Sanibel National Wildlife Refuge. So it's this grassroots kind of feeling, um, an organization where Ding Darling and citizens, I mean, this whole island, to be set aside for conservation was is such a success story. Um, and the early starts of it was 
to be state land, which then is finally federally designated in 1945 as the Sanibel National Wildlife Refuge. So once you get that federal designation, you know, this land is going to be protected forever. And that was very important um, to to ding an early concerned citizen. So to move to sort of what ding is now, what makes Ding yeah. unique from other refuges in the country or other refuges in the state? If there's nothing that sort of sets it apart, I mean, that's yeah. part of it as well. But but what sort of makes Ding yeah. unique in your mind? So it's, first of all, we were the first National Wildlife Refuge to be named after a person, a man. Wow. Um, and so now there's the Rachel Carson. I mean, there's the Sonny Bono National Wildlife Refuge. Really? I didn't I mean, know that. <laughs> That's great. (laughs) A lot of politicians, including him at that time, you know, write their bills and want land set aside. But we were the first named after a man. And it was really about the mangroves and the importance of the estuary, the nursery of the sea. We know these mangrove, and a lot of people think I'm saying mango, like the fruit, but mangrove, these trees that can live in salt water, that protect our coastlines, that protect us from storms, that provide habitat for wildlife. You know, they drop their leaves and create this detritus, this mucky smell, but it is fish food for the whole ocean. You know, 70% of the seafood we eat gets its start in these estuaries, these nurseries of the sea. So it is so important that these these trees are protected. So once you protect these trees to protect the island, to protect the wildlife, it protects the fishing industry, protects the tourism, and it brings the wildlife here because of it, you know, that's really the establishment of this refuge is migratory birds and to have this land set aside so that we have it um, for the future. But with, I mean, when it comes to the refuge system, I mentioned we have 568 of these special places. They're within 50 miles of every major city. I'm about to fly into Minneapolis tomorrow. I'm going to fly over a national wildlife refuge. They are Denver, Albuquerque, so many. Vegas, we've got these national wildlife refuges within 50 miles of major cities. We're so urban people just don't really know about us they know about the national parks and and they're beautiful places and people love the parks but these are special places that are in your backyard that you can set foot on either leave your phone behind or bring it along but just to get out and to hike the trails Um, and they're all established for different things mostly threatened and endangered species which is the big thing with the u.s fish and wildlife service migratory birds Um, And thus, it would be air quality, water quality, because all of that goes hand in hand. But as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we administer the Endangered Species Act, which protects these critical wildlife. And we know if we protect the land, we're going to protect the wildlife. But they're all established for different purposes. They're all different and unique, um, and they're all really cool special places to visit. What are the sort of uh, endangered or uh, threatened species that you're seeing in Ding? Manatees. Um, we have crocodiles on the island, American crocodiles. A lot of people know us for our alligators. Alligators, too, are protected, but you can hunt them in Florida right. with a permit. But true um, cro- crocodiles are endangered. You know, wood storks, that's kind of known in our area. A lot of the birds are protected, 
But as for um, definitely manatees, if you ever get to see a small tooth sawfish, it's this prehistoric fish that is amazing, 14 foot up to 20 something long, a, a sawfish. So cool. We're seeing the comeback of them as we're protecting these areas. So manatees, sawfish, a lot of the birds, crocodiles, or it could be the Sanibel Island rice rat. We even protect rats, as crazy as it sounds. We've got an indigenous rat that's only found here on Sanibel. What? And it dives and catches fish. Yes. Um, we protect, our one of our trails is named the Indigo Trail. It's after the eastern indigo snake. That is the largest non-venomous snake in North America. A very docile, nice, beautiful snake. Um, and so that's a protected species. So because we protect these critical species, and you obviously never want to be on the endangered species list when you're um, an, an animal, right? But because of that, then it's the benefits of the bobcats and the marsh rabbits and all of the other birds um, that get to the river otters. You know, all of these other really cool species that we get to see and flourish go for tortoises, a protected species. Right. If you haven't seen them munching on the side of the road. It's, it's awesome that a few critical species then helps flourish a lot of these other animals. Sea turtles. It's sea turtle nesting time. Mm-hmm. We have a portion of the beach called the Perry Tract over there. It's closed to the public. Um, but we work really hard starting the, the sea turtle program here in Sanibel. Now we've handed it over to SCCF, another partner. You know, not one organization can do it all. We are a great example here on Sanibel where we've got Crow, the animal cr- hospital across the street, SCCF, the city of Sanibel, Ding Darling. We are a bunch of organizations, the Shell Museum that work together because it takes more than just one organization to have such a successful conservation story of this island. That was amazing. I have I have so many things to to say. The first is I think I saw a rat, a a Sanibel rat at the okay. lighthouse. Does that sound like a place where they would be? I was at the lighthouse and I saw something and I went, "Oh, there's a mouse or a rat or something." It, it, it looked like some kind of rodent. I know it wasn't one of the one of the marsh hares. I don't I, it might well, I'm going to tell you. We have more rats in Florida than people realize. You know, if we wanted to, like, ruin the tourism industry, which we do not, there are a lot of rats, palm rats, and rice rats, and hispid cotton, and all this. There's all these different species of rats that utilize this area. And, you know, just when someone's like, oh, my gosh, a snake, you know, there's a balance that we need because, and that's our job, right, is to keep the balance of nature we deal with exotics that's a whole nother thing dealing with iguanas right now on the island with explosions you know since covid and um pythons in the everglades you know these exotics that come in and take over the area but we have a lot of native species of rats that you may never see because first of all maybe they're not getting out into nature but they aren't these sewer rats that you see you know like in the cities, right? So they're they're utilizing the environment and live in our trees and our shrubbery and play an important balance in our ecosystem. So it's hard to say exactly which one you might have seen. Um, the Sanibel Island rice rat, I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. 
if there was a cute rat, it's actually cute. <laughs> it's got like a white belly and pink feet. <laughs> but it, um, again, you know, it's all in the eyes of the beholder, I guess, um, when it comes to cuteness. But we do have lots of species um, that utilize this area. So it's hard to say what you saw. Real quick, before we keep going, Tony mentions a ton of organizations just then, and I want to go over a few of them because we're going to talk about them more. One is the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, which is also called the SCCF, which works to care for all of the parts of the ecosystem in this pair of islands. Another organization is called Crow or the Clinic for the Rehabilitation of Wildlife. They take in injured animals and actually have a handful of live cameras that show the current status of their animals. The island itself has a newspaper called the Island Sun, which I am in love with. I discuss it here with Tony. I love reading local papers big time, especially like tiny city papers and the Sanibel, what's it called? I actually have a copy of it right here. The Sanibel. The Island Sun or I believe it is. I believe it is the Island Sun. That is amazing. And one of the things I love most (laughs) about it is the middle section of it. It's like the rescued bird of the week from crow the shell of the week from the shell museum the the uh, uh conservation tip of the week from the sandoval conservation fund like the sandoval captiva conservation fund the uh you know events happening at ding this week it was just at page after page where i was like this community <laughs> is so animal and nature and water and bird oriented it was just incredible to see it was it was it knocked my socks off how i was like i could i wish i could get this paper delivered to sanford florida so i could read it every week it's it's the best (laughs) it's so great i know it's really nice we joke like oh it's a slow news week or whatever but no that's the way the paper is always they want to support what's going on they want yeah they want to support the free programs and um yeah, I mean, you find a Junonia on the beach and they put you in the paper. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it blew me away. That was the best part. It was like so-and-so, right? eight from Manatee County, found this. So-and-so, 53 <laughs> from from Boston, Massachusetts, found this shell. I was like, this is the best newspaper in the world. It kills me. It's so great. I love it. Yeah. But anyway, to, to sort of, <laughs> to, to focus, to force myself to focus, um, what... <laughs> I know this is probably an impossible question, but if you are on Ding, if you had to spend a day in one spot in the refuge, I said on, in Ding, like one spot in the refuge that you would want to spend all your time, like a spot that you find the most joy or peace or or, uh, uh, enjoyment out of, is there a spot in the refuge that, that is that for you? Oh, that is so, yes. It's our Wildlife Education Boardwalk. I think probably that's because it connects to the school. So little school kids can walk over and they utilize it. But what's great is so can our visitors utilize it the other way. Every spring, we have over five different types of birds nesting there. We watch birds build nests, lay eggs, hatchlings, fledglings. Like we watch within sometimes 10, 20 feet. You don't need binoculars. You can see tricolors, green herons, anhingas, yellow crowns. 
And of course, the ospreys way up on the, you know, on the different light posts right next to the school. I created a scat trail so little kids can lift the panels and see it's fake poop, animal poop, and they can see what's left behind. So it's a fun trail for little kids. And then it becomes magical in the springtime. So the winters are big focus with a lot of birds, migratory birds here spending the winter, our snowbirds. Then we kind of go into nesting baby bird season. Then we come into the hot summer months with manatees and dolphins. You know, I joke, I'm from the north, but we don't have, we have seasons of wildlife. We don't have seasons of temperature. You know, we don't have (laughs) the changing of color and fall and leaves. It's definitely our seasons are designated by wildlife. And so every different month is a different, every day is a different experience here. But that place is magical because people can get there. Uh, There's a lot to see. It gets you, it's a double-deckered pavilion, so it gets you over the water, kind of a bird's-eye view. But the the magical nesting season that happens and what we are able to witness there. And sometimes the nests don't make it. You know, we have to teach people about nothing in nature goes to waste. I mean, that kind of thing happens also where maybe nature isn't always the most beautiful and sometimes it's hard to watch, but it is the coolest thing to experience to watch these birds fledge. And so that's probably my favorite area. One of my favorite spots in Ding during my visit was a flat area deep in the park where early on the morning I arrived, a flock of roseate spoonbills nestled in the water as cheerful guests observed. Call me stereotypical, but the spoonbill is probably my favorite Florida bird. Nearby was a viewfinder with a unique feature. When I was on, when I was in the refuge, one of the things that was most like, whoa, to me was the new viewfinder that has color corrective for people who are yes. colorblind or, or, or need like a, a, a adjustments to their eyes to see birds or things like that. And I read in the paper, I read in the paper that we've talked about that that was a fairly recent addition, but it feels like the park is, is working to meet the world as it is, so to speak. And yeah. It was so impressive to see something like that because I don't think that crosses a lot of people's minds that nature is nature we think is is the most common playing field, right? Everybody can come to nature and interact with it in the same way because it's a forest or a trail or a thing like that. But how do you feel that the park or or or, or conservation in America in general is dealing with a is making sure that all people can have space on conservation refuges? Right. So it's ironic that you mention all of this because an email just came out. So again, we are the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're under the Department of Interior. Our new Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, just sent out an email that we are celebrating today, the 31st anniversary of the Americas with Disabilities Act, the ADA Act. Oh, wow. Is that today? It's today. Oh, and wow. so she just sent it out. And so we are all striving. And so not only it's the whole Department of Interior where um, she wants us that as we should put our best everything forward to be accessible to everyone. And so this scope was I, I found this during COVID, another success of COVID 
that this colorblind scope we installed, but the actual scope, it's a special lens called, it's a company in Chroma, and we are the third place to debut this lens in the country. Wow. Amicalova Falls in Georgia. The gateway to Mount Hood in Sandy, Oregon has installed one of these colorblind viewfinders as well. But now we are the first national wildlife refuge to have a colorblind scope. One in 12 men are colorblind. One in 200 women are colorblind. When you do the math with a million visitors a year, 42,000 people come here to enjoy our refuge and they have some sort of colorblindness. And we just assume people all see these beautiful roseate spoonbills the same way, right? And they don't. So to be putting out a new lens that opens people's eyes, literally, to the color that they can't see, just a, a great addition to the refuge in which we should be. All of our, our towers and our trails and our visitor center, and we have a lift that brings you to the visitor center you know, everything, we strive to be accessible, and this is just that one thing that maybe I never thought of, and it's very much a part of our society. One of the, the my sort of last question is, if, uh, if people come to Ding, or even just hear this episode and have never been and want to come, but are just sort of taken by the what Ding is and what you guys do there, what is the takeaway you want people to have? What What is the thing you want people to be thinking about when they leave Ding and return to their suburban or urban lives? What's the What's the nugget that you want to be stuck in their mind? Yeah, what it is is that um, you know you can visit you can visit these beautiful places, you know these parks, these national wildlife refuges, but that there's so much nature around us. We hope that this is a springboard that when they go back to their home, if it's snowy Chicago or, you know, it it could be all over the gamut, back to Europe or anywhere in the United States to find the nature in their backyard. Support, of course, national wildlife refuges. We love it. We love people to visit us and see our mission. But it could be, like you said, a state park, a county park, but even getting out into your backyard and going on that hike, going on that walk, you know, bike ride, spending time with loved ones, appreciating each other in a very kind way, right, and each other, but also experiencing nature and that it is within your reach. You just have to take the time. If it's putting down the technology and getting out or just going out to sit and observe and be present, I think that would make all of us better people. I love the simplicity of that final statement. We get away from the world for a moment if we turn off our screens and step outside, if we just become still in nature for a moment, taking in the world around us. If we do those things, we could be better people. I've certainly found that to be true. Some of the friendliest communities I've found myself amongst are the people out on trails, on beaches, on wildlife drives. When I stood there observing the spoonbills and manatees, a pair of photographers chattered about how they got into the hobby and which lenses they were using. A couple approached me as I observed the manatees, and after a brief greeting, we just stood there, watching them float. We exchanged pleasantries and went on our way, but it's been three months since then, and I still remember their faces. This is just a place to find people. We shared that space together for a moment, and that is just one of the values of Ding Refuge. 
This place is special, and everyone who visits knows it. Nature brings out the best in us. One last thing before I go. I asked Tony where the best place to learn more about Ding would be, and she gave a great answer. Yeah, I mean, just go online and Google Ding Darling. We are on Facebook. Um, our friends group has great Facebook, Instagram. There's Ding on the Wing. You can sign up for the electronic newsletter through our friends group. No obligation, but that's where recent sightings are put out and exciting things happening in the refuge. The Ding Darling Wildlife Society, and it's called Ding on the Wing. Things like they made America's Best Restroom um, possible. We won America's Best Restroom in 2018, where we educate you while you're using the restroom. What? So kind of... <laughs> Yes, if you did not, you missed I didn't. I have to go you back. Everything. Oh yes. my god, I have to go. <laughs> um, we joke, but it was an undertaking where I needed to update and green our restrooms of low flow toilets and all this kind of. We were the building was built in '99, and our restrooms were very behind. And I went to our friends group that makes it happen because of generous donations and people that care, and. Um, our executive director, Bergie Miller, was like, listen, do you know that there's like this, there's this quirky thing called America's Best Restroom. It's a contest. We could win it. Like, Cintas puts it out. And people follow clean, beautiful, educational restrooms. And I'm like, what? So we have a captive audience for about 90 seconds, and we are educating them. Each stall is a different bird. There's sculptures. It immerses you underwater. The men's room is different from the ladies' room. And we won. It was a social media campaign. We won America's Best Restroom 2018. That is amazing. I'm so sad you missed it. I'm so (laughs) – that's amazing. That's so great. (laughs) I mean, I am going to come back anyway, but that's top priority now. Like, I I missed the wildlife drive last time time I was there now I miss the bathroom so uh, that's just the next thing to come back for that is amazing so when you come back yes you need to contact me ahead of time and so we can go on a tour I would love that thank you so much hey come for the magnificent wildlife and stay for the best bathroom in America Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. You've picked a great place to join us. The conservation season is just getting started and there's so much to see. If you are looking for a good place to catch up on old episodes, we've talked about Sanibel before and explored more of its history rather than its nature. I've included a link to that episode. It was actually the two-year anniversary episode and we had such a wonderful time. Go check that episode out. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. Head to wfmpod.com for more. You can pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. 
Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. You can grab the current stickers individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to Tony Westland of the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. She basically brought this season to life. We had such an amazing conversation. I am grateful for all the time she spent chatting with me. If you are in Sanibel, if you're looking for a getaway, Ding is the place to be. It's just one of the most peaceful spots in Florida. So go check it out and go patronize the best bathroom in America. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. Next week is a very exciting episode. I'm going to tell you about an unusual bird in Florida's history that is now long extinct. But I want to tell you about the man who was a part of its extinction, one of the most important figures in ornithological history. My guest is the author Michelle Nyehaus, whose book Beloved Beasts was another huge inspiration for this season. You'll hear a lot from her and about the Carolina parakeet next week. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Please get vaccinated to help support your community. And if it's time to get your booster shot, look into it to help support those around you. And of course, drink more water. I'll see you next Monday.